This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. So today, I am very excited to introduce the conversation between authors Susan Choi and Nicole Chung. Susan Choi is an author that I feel almost needs no introduction. I struggle to refrain from simply listing all the awards and accolades her her novels have garnered. Asian American Literary Award for her debut, The Foreign Student, Pulitzer Prize finalist for American American Woman, Lambda Literary Award for My Education, just to name a few. Trust Exercise is Susan Choi's fifth novel. It's a structurally daring narrative that dives deep into its themes of consent and coercion through a suburban high school setting. Through three acts, each upending the last, Choi's writing follows, manipulates, and challenges the reliability of its main players, David and Sarah, freshmen at a competitive school for performance arts who fall in love with each other, and Mr. Kingsley, the magnetic theater teacher who subjects his students to the titular trust exercises in class. Susan Choi is joined in conversation today with Nicole Chung, editor-in-chief of Catapult Magazine and the author of All You Can Ever Know, a memoir about adoption, motherhood, and the search for one's roots. It's great. Her forthcoming book will be a memoir in essays examining grief, class, and healthcare inequality. So without further delay, please give a warm welcome to Susan Choi and Nicole Chung. You guys good? <laughs> yeah, all right. Thank you so much, Jade. Thank you all for being here. Susan, it's an honor to be in conversation with you today. I loved the book. Um, Thank you. I can't wait to talk about it. Um, Would you mind starting by reading for us? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, I'm a little less ready than usual because I tragically left my um, cruddy reading glasses that I'm used to elsewhere and had to go just buy new cruddy reading glasses that I'm not used to. So they have sticky stuff on them, but... Thank you, Jade, for trying to de-sticky them. Um, I'm going to read from early in the book, but not from the very beginning, so I do want to give you a small amount of context. Not too much. Um, Trust Exercise starts in a performing arts high school. It's the 1980s, and the students include Sarah and David, who've just had a pretty spectacular breakup. Um, Sarah's now former best friend, Joelle, and other miscellaneous students who, like Sarah, David, and Joelle, are all 10th graders in the theater arts program of this high school. Their teacher is Mr. Kingsley, their acting teacher. And I think that should do you okay for this scene, which takes place early in sophomore year. Mr. Kingsley has just informed them that it's time for them to do ego reconstruction. As so often before, they grew uneasily aware of their crotches as they sat down cross-legged and felt the icy touch of the linoleum numbing their asses. Most of them had privately concluded that ego deconstruction reconstruction was some sort of fleshless orgy, and they were helplessly blushing, their skin crawling with arousal and dread. The wall of mirrors doubled their circle around which Mr. Kingsley paced in orbit. His gaze was cast somewhere beyond them. His very way of gazing told them plainly how far they fell short of last year's sophomores, of their own potential, of the actors he'd known in New York. They felt their deficit all the more sharply because the unit of measure was wholly unknown. Sarah tried to see David, but he'd placed himself near enough to her left or her right that she couldn't see him, but far enough that she couldn't sense him. Would David be chosen? Would Sarah be chosen? Joel, Mr. Kingsley murmured in a tone of regretful admonishment, sadness almost at her failure. But what had Joel done? She was pink year round and a summer's worth of sunburn had her mottled and peeling all over her face and down into the cleavage broadly exposed by her tight V-neck top. The new raw pink skin turned bright red at the sound of her name. All the curls of dead, half-peeled skin seemed to rustle with fear. Her surface was disgusting, Sarah thought. Joelle, please stand at the circle's exact center. You're the hub. Invisible lines radiate out from you to each one of your classmates. 
These lines are the spokes. Your classmates and you and these spokes make the wheel. You're the hub of the wheel, Joelle. Okay, Joelle said, blushing fiercely, a fountain of blood pounding under her skin. I'd like you to choose one spoke now. Look down the length of that spoke. Someone's at the other end. Someone you're bound to by that spoke passing through you and passing through them. Who's the person you're looking at? The linoleum doesn't feel cold anymore. Please, no, Sarah realizes, staring straight ahead at Joelle's middle, at her soft belly concealed beneath the tight top. I'm looking at Sarah, Joelle says huskily, her voice almost a whisper. Tell her what you observe. You didn't call me all summer, Joelle barely chokes out. Go on, Mr. Kingsley says, gazing somewhere miles away. He's not even looking in Joelle's direction. Perhaps he's using the room's giant mirror to watch Joelle's burning skin, her glittering eyes, her too tight top out of the corner of one eye. And I would call you and you wouldn't call back. And I mean, maybe it's me, but it's like, I feel like, stand up for your feelings, Joelle, Mr. Kingsley barks out. We were best friends and you act like you don't even know me. The strangled grief in her voice is far harder to bear than the words. Sarah is frozen, a statue. She's staring blindly at the opposite wall with its door to the hallway as if she could will herself out of this room, and then suddenly it's Joelle who bolts. Joelle stumbles headlong through the circle, practically stepping on Colin and Manuel. She wrenches open the door and, unleashing a wail, disappears down the hall. In her wake, no one breathes. No one looks anywhere but the floor. No one even looks at Sarah. Life is suspended. Abruptly, Mr. Kingsley wheels on Sarah. What are you doing? He demands, and Sarah flinches in alarm. Go after her. Sarah lurches to her feet and out the door, unable to imagine the faces she's leaving behind, even David's. She isn't even able to find where he was in the circle. The halls are deserted. The slippery black and white checkerboard wrapping harshly against the hard soles of her boots, her punk boots, cruel toed with metal stilettos and three large silver square buckles each. Behind closed classroom doors on the West Hall, the freshmen and juniors doze through the requirements, English and algebra, social studies and Spanish. Down the South and East Halls, the real life of the school can be heard. The jazz band splashing through Ellington, the lone pianist's hands prancing over the keys in the dance studio, and the thumping of bound, bloody feet. The smoker's courtyard is empty, its sun-bleached benches bearing only acorns from the massive live oak. The outdoor classroom, a walled-in rectangle of grass with a stage at one end, is also empty, its street-side gate padlocked. Sarah wills David, not Joelle, to appear in these secretive places, David to be sitting on the empty smoker's bench, David to be sitting underneath the oak tree. The rear entrance leads to the rear parking lot where the students park and also eat lunch on the hoods of their cars when the weather's good. Joelle is outside the doors, doubled up, honking with sobs. Joelle clearly meant to escape in her car but was slowed by her grief. The keys to her Mazda poke out of one fist. This is the brand new, rocket-like little Mazda Joelle bought with cash, more than $10,000 in cash. She once showed Sarah stuffed into a coffee can under her bed. Sarah didn't know where this money came from. Drug sales, she assumed, possibly something else. Each day, Joelle drives the car to a friend's house a few blocks from home and then walks the rest of the way so her parents won't see it. Joelle is not convoluted, but simple, not sullen, but sunny, yet she has the extensive clandestine life of a career criminal. And this used to enthrall Sarah. Now Joelle appears stripped bare, her essence exposed. She's just a party girl, over-eager to be liked. The insight startles Sarah not because of its unkindness, but because this, 
she suddenly knows is the sort of insight Mr. Kingsley is constantly trying to extract. He paced with impatience last year when they told each other during observation such things as, you're a really nice girl, or I think you're handsome. Yet at this moment, Sarah equally knows there's a story unfolding into which her true feelings don't fit. She's supposed to hug Joelle, make it up to her. She knows this as surely as if Mr. Kingsley stood there supervising it all. She has the strong feeling he is there. Joelle, precociously fleshy and pungent, so obliviously manifests the carnal that Sarah's own self-conscious carnality becomes disgusting to her, along with her own flesh, her own scent. Joelle's enormous breasts are heavily freckled, their trapped clefts and creases are constantly sweaty. Joelle's crotch encased in her jeans trails an olfactory banner like some sort of sticky night flower to inflame jungle bats. Joelle sleeps with much older men. At school, she disregards boys as if they're not even incipient men. She only has eyes for Sarah. Half closing her eyes, Almost grinding her teeth, Sarah takes Joelle into her arms. Joelle clings to her gratefully, soaks her shoulder with tears and slick snot. This is also self-control, Sarah thinks, this brute willing of the self to take action. Until now, Sarah thought self-control was only restraint, not putting the chair through the glass. I'm really sorry, she hears herself mumbling. I'm so messed up right now. I didn't mean to seem distant. Things have just been so crazy. What's been going on? I could tell you had shit going on. I just knew. Soon the counterfeit is complete. Sarah intended to confide in no one. And if someone, Joelle least of all. Now as if reading a script, she tells Joelle about the decoy tennis racket, the empty snack bar. Confession made, she's in receipt of Joelle's whole devotion again. Joelle's sobs turn to mirth, her abject supplication to glee. She clings to Sarah no longer from the weakness of grief, but to prevent herself rolling merrily on the sidewalk. Having bought back a friendship she no longer wanted by defiling the one thing she cared about most, Sarah knows it doesn't matter that she enjoins Joelle to a secrecy that puts Joel into raptures. Joel is practically wrapped like a vine around Sarah as they stumble back into the classroom and almost literally into David. Because they've been gone for so long, class has ended and David's the first on his feet to escape. At the sight of David, Joel bursts out laughing and covers her face. David's shoulders roughly past Sarah and Sarah feels bonfires ignite on her skin. Mr. Kingsley, also on his way out, says as if as an afterthought, Sarah, come by and see me tomorrow at lunch. Not even David, in the course of escaping, fails to hear the summons or fails to understand what it means. Even Joelle, who has so misunderstood her entire transaction with Sarah, understands what Mr. Kingsley's summons means. Joelle tightens her hot grip on Sarah with sisterly envy. Sarah has become the kind of problem they would all like to be. Thanks. So good. Um, thank you. <laughs> so I have been obsessed with this book. I took it on vacation like about a month ago. And like ever since all I've wanted is to talk to people about it. I feel like everyone I know has been simultaneously freaking out about it. Um, it's just such a great, heartbreaking, tender, like shocking story in so many ways. I have a lot of questions for you that would unfortunately delve into spoiler territory and we will keep this spoiler free, but um, you know, I don't think it's giving anything away to say, you know, the first half of the book pretty much is told from one perspective, one narrator, and then suddenly halfway through we switch to the perspective of a different character, with a different name than the character we thought she was in the first. And you think, okay, like now I'm really gonna get the truth, but in fact, she's also not always the most reliable voice. And so, yeah. yeah, and the third is something else entirely. But I guess I'm just wondering, like, where did this structure and all these voices come from? Was that always the plan for this book? No, um, that was never the plan <laughs> for this book. I don't, 
I tend not to have a plan for my books, which is, um, it's nerve wracking and it's also fun. I find it to be more, I guess, motivating to write books that I, I have no idea where they're headed than to, I mean, the truth is I actually have no, no ability to plan ahead. So it's not as if I'm choosing like, you're not like an outliner. I'm not an outliner. I don't understand those people. I don't understand those people either. And I, I, some, I, I would think that they were all liars if it wasn't that I actually do know truly brilliant fiction writers who are outliners. And I, so I've seen it happen. And I've, I've never been able to understand. I mean, it, just everyone writes, diff- everyone who writes, writes very differently. And um, I tend to write my way forward into a fog every day, sort of thinking what will come next. And, um, my desire to know is part of what like gets me to sit down and actually work every day. This book was a little bit different because almost all of my previous books I've written, um, in such a way that that was the thing I was doing. Like I was, I was doing that for better and mostly for worse. It was the one thing I was trying to complete. And every day I would kind of sit down and bang my head on the wall about that thing. This book was actually, um, originally just a thing that I started to waste time while I was trying to finish a different book that was going very poorly. And so I would sneak away from it and do other things and try to feel like I'd put in my writing time. And one day I started, I, one day I, I started writing what would actually end up being the first page of this book. And then I, I wrote a few more pages and left it for years actually. Um, but periodically I'd return to it and add a little to the file always kind of just for fun. Um, and I didn't know where it was going and it didn't really feel like it was going anywhere, to be honest. It was kind of going forward into, into murk that didn't really dissipate. And one day when I happened to feel like picking it up again, and it had been, I mean, more than half a year since I'd looked at the file, when I picked it up again, that different voice that was very irate about everything that had come before just kind of entered my mind. Like the thought of someone who, it was in the fall of 2016. So I was just going to ask if maybe your own uh, mood had something to do with it, but I didn't want to presume. My own mood was definitely connected to it. Um, So in the fall of 2016, for some reason, I was thinking a lot about storytelling and all of the sinister and damaging forms of storytelling that I had never really given a lot of thought to before. Um, all of the forms of storytelling that seemed to be taking place on a, on a national level and inflicting so much damage. And I kept thinking, how can these stories possibly be told? Um, how can so many people possibly be listening to them? I'm feeling really angry about it. And, and so it was, it was, when I turned back to trust exercise, I guess not that surprising that suddenly in the world of that story, there was someone there who was also really mad about the story that was being told in that world. Yeah, I loved that. And I, I was going to ask you about this later because I felt like people who haven't read it yet might need a little more information about the story. But just since you mentioned storytelling first, um, with all the switching voices, it really felt like this book has so much to say about about that and about who gets to tell stories and who listens and whose voices are kind of erased. And when you're looking back on a shared history, like whose perspective kind of wins the day, I love that this structure just flips all that. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you, could you talk a little bit more about that second character that we get once we get the story from a different angle? Like, why did you want to follow this voice? Like, and how did, how did the voice like develop as you wrote? Did you know the story would completely be different? This has truly never happened to me before, and I'm pretty sure it will never happen again. But I just said I wasn't an outliner, and I'm really not. But when that voice entered my mind in September of 2016, and I even remember that it was like meeting someone. I even remember what was happening that day. It's Karen. I should just say <laughs> that because I'm going to ask more questions about her. So It's this character named Karen or, or Karen. <laughs> Actually, her name is Karen. Um <laughs> But when Karen, you know, uh, sort of introduced herself forcibly to me on this day, I, unlike at any other point in my writing life, and it'll probably never happen again, I knew exactly what she was mad about. And I knew exactly how her, she essentially 
kind of comes in to contest, right? She's a, she comes in to challenge the narrative and say like, screw that. That is actually not, that is, I don't agree. And I knew really almost immediately what it was that she disagreed about. And I, I kind of knew how she was going to disagree. So it was a, this thrilling, again, like never to be repeated moment in my fictional career where I thought, oh my God, I actually know what's going to happen. I could outline it or I could just write it. And I, and I wrote it really quickly. Um, that, the second part, you mean? The second part, yeah. The second part I wrote more quickly than I've ever written anything. It was actually done before the election was, although in a way the election was already done. Um, but I bit between like September and late October that all came sort of tumbling out. And at the same time as I knew what was going to happen, I also understood for the first time that I was working on a book because I'd been kind of lying to myself all along. Like at that point I had, you know, like 80 to a hundred pages of trust exercise. And I kept hoping it would be a short story. I'd even sent it to my agent thinking that she would have some brilliant idea of how to cut it. And she just kind of sent it back. She was like, I don't know what this is. <laughs> she, just, she had, she had, she had no help. Um, but when Karen came along, I both knew what her piece of it would be and knew now that this was a book that had no ending because I knew that Karen wasn't the end. Right. And so it was both total certainty about her and sudden complete uncertainty about the rest. I want to talk to you about high school because, um, you know, that's the setting for at least the first half of the book is this performing arts high school in an unnamed place, but it feels like suburban near an urban place. You need a car to get around. If you don't have a car, like you might as well not be alive kind of place. It really spoke to me. I grew up in a place sort of like that. Um, but I just think that you wrote about, um, the vulnerability and the scariness and that weird in-betweenness of teenage life so well, um, really so much better than many people who attempt it. And I mean, I was remembering how there's a great line. I'm going to look it up cause I wrote it down. Sorry. Um, basically where one of the characters says, we knew what we were doing. We were never children. And he's looking back on their teen, their shared teen history. But I mean, that's true. And it's not like, of course they were children in a way, um, I just felt like this rush of empathy for like my teenage self, which doesn't usually happen. Right. And I, I wanted to know like, why was there a particular reason that you felt like you wanted to write about this, this age group or this time in life? Yeah. I mean, I didn't actually choose to write about the age group or the time so much as I was really interested in writing about, um, I was really, well, I guess I was, but secondarily, I was really interested in writing about this student teacher dynamic that is, in the book, um, enacted through in part, these trust exercises, these, um, and the scene that I read actually sort of gives a hint of, of one such, right? This, this is a exercise that they're being taught to do. That's called ego reconstruction, where they're supposed to stand up in front of their 15 year old peers and be, and, and practice like radical honesty with them. Um, and like a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, you know, this was, this was something that I was fascinated by because these exercises are, a lot of these are like sort of classic acting class exercises and you can find them in a, in a lot of, um, in a lot of kind of methods for, for learning to be an actor. And then, um, are we being recorded? (laughs) And then, yeah. So some of these, some of these exercises also arguably appear in slightly different form in the practices of certain unconventional 20th century religions that I'm not going to name. And I initially was really fascinated by that conjunction because I was doing a lot of research into this 20th century religious practice that I'm not going to name. Another book or my thought initially was that I would write a book about this. Um, but then I got increasingly scared off about the, about the prospect. Um, and so, but meanwhile, while researching this religious practice, I had noticed this really striking similarity between these practices and these acting exercises. And I, I started thinking like, well, that's really interesting because in the religious context, these seem to be exercises that are, intended to sort of coercively mold 
disparate individuals into a kind of a more uniform, compliant mass. And, oh, that maybe is what, what is also going on in acting class sometimes. And so that, that was what took me into the story initially was the idea of those practices and teachers and students, especially young, young students, teenage students. Um, I wanted to talk more about that teacher-student relationship or relationships. There's a lot of, this book has so much to say about consent and like power and um, often like there are many student characters. I don't think this is a spoiler either to say that they are either manipulated or exploited or even preyed upon in certain ways by teachers and by adults in authority positions. They're consistently kind of led by the nose by them and then let down by them. And um it, it just made me think about like how difficult it really is to um, like interrogate that past history. And I've, I've seen some um, some questions that you've gotten about whether this is a Me Too book. And I think it, it is and it isn't. But um, that's probably too simplistic a way of putting it. Sorry, I was just reminded about how in high school, like in other schools I've been part of, you know, there were these like persistent rumors about like certain educators. And I mean, to our shame, I think we actually... Um, I don't think we knew what to make of those, you know, like you have this weird fake worldliness when you're a teenager. Um, Yeah, that's really well put. Right. And so you you feel like you have to approach even these horrific things with kind of this jaded, like I, you know, I can look out for myself. In fact, like who's really looking out for the the teens in this book? Um, Yeah. Just what made you want to write about this particular subject like that, those relationships and that power imbalance? Yeah, well, that's really you put it really, really well. And that's something that I think is um, incredibly important to grapple with and really hard to grapple with this idea, the fake worldliness, um, which doesn't feel fake, uh, to a person that age, or at least as, you know, as somebody who was once that age, I remember it not feeling fake at all. I felt very, um, very much at the age of 14, 15, 16, as if I was in charge of myself, as if I had really great judgment, as if I had enough experience to really know what I was doing. Um, and also I, I remember distinctly feeling that it was important for me to be able to exercise choices about what, what I did and who with. So when you, when you remember vividly how it felt to have what, what, what felt like complete agency, and then you think back on situations in which really, um, what was happening was not okay. What, how do, what do you do with that? Like, wait, so the character Karen has this experience as a, as a young woman slash girl, like we don't even really know what to call her, right? She's a 16 year old and, and she, you know, feels both like a woman and like a girl. She has an experience that, um, on the one hand she chooses and on the other hand, arguably, she's she's drawn into by an extremely manipulative and very, very uh, experienced older person. Much later in her life, she cannot, she's kind of riven down the middle by this sense of having been exploited and this sense of having been an agent who chose. And those two things are really, really hard to reconcile. And I think that... Um, it can happen to us at any age that we can be exploited by those who have power over us. And yet at the same time, um, also have the experience of, of feeling we've chosen the situation. But I think that it's particularly common at that age where you're, you know, not a child, but you're also a child. I mean, I, I didn't feel like a child at that age. So I, in, in a lot of ways, I 100% agree. We were never children is, is, you know, what that character says. But at the same time, I now have children that age. Yeah. And, oh, yeah, they're children. They don't think so, you know, but I know that they are. Yeah, it would have been simpler if when she was like, and interrogating history is so hard for, for anyone to do, I think, at any point in their life. But it would have been simpler if when Karen looked back, she were able to like make the call and say, this was absolutely not my fault. Like I was a victim and I thought it was interesting and so powerful that that wasn't, that wasn't the narrative choice you made. She's clearly, she blames herself as much as anyone for what happened. Um, and I think that's just a kind of a powerful thing to think about too, given the conversations that we've had around Me Too and everything else. You know, we are looking hard at people's pasts um and like often it's just a really hard call to make in in your own life in what's happened to you like how do you resolve it um I thought it was just great how the novel didn't really wrap that up for her 
but it was also yeah. very sad. <laughs> it's very sad. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's too easy to, um, and, and it's so, and it's, it's too easy to be able to say one or the other. Karen's not able to do it. And the, and the thing that's so, for me, that one of the things that's so important about her inability to decide I was a victim. I was, I was wronged by someone. And regardless of the fact that I feel like I walked into that trap with my own two feet, I was 16 years old. The other party was much older. I'm able to understand now that, that I was damaged, which she can't do. And the fact that she can't do that, um, among other effects, it completely removes the possibility of alliance from her life. She's unable to ally herself with other women, which is another thing that I really wanted to sort of look at in terms of how that feels. And she can't, you know, it's a, it's a period in the book. It's a period during which women are coming forward and pointing backwards to things that happened in the past and saying, I might've seemed to agree to it at the time, but like, let's look at how old I was. It wasn't okay. And Karen looks at those women with this mingled scorn and kind of longing. Like on the one hand, she's like, well, you made a bad choice. So tough on you. And on the other hand, I hope what comes across is how wounded she is by being unable to count herself among them and sort of put herself beside them. She can't do it. Right. Like, I don't think in any way the, it w- like the story should be read as like an endorsement of that scorn that she has, but I think it's really powerful the way it's presented in the book. Um, it is interesting too, like what you said about her not allying herself with women. Of course, like there, for a lot of her, her, the part of her story, you know, the person she's really expressing the most anger with, at least on the page is Sarah, you know, who, might have done some things that like, you know, I could understand her feeling betrayed, but wasn't like the main perpetrator. Right. Right. And who was also the same age as she was exactly, and a child like her. Similarly you know. kind of a, vic- you know, a victim. It's interesting how looking back, even as adults, none of them can actually refer to themselves as, you know, victims or whatever. Um, I love like the rage kind of simmering under like this book. Um, and if you're willing, I would love for you to just talk a little bit about that. It felt, um, it feels like purposeful. It feels like it does really serve the story, but um, like at its heart in certain ways, it's a hilarious, but like angry book. Did you feel that as you were writing it? Was that something you consciously leaned into? Um, yeah. I mean, I did feel, <laughs> I did. Again, like understandable. I, I, I did feel really, I mean, I still feel really angry about a lot of things. Um, Sadly, I'm not actively writing right now. I'm not, I'm not like pouring it all into some, uh, I'm not being productive with it, but, um, I, I was, I was angry and it was an anger that had predated, you know, that particular fall. And, um, it's interesting because this book having been written really, um, as I said, intermittently, uh, which I've never done and which is really weird for me, you know, that I would have written this book for like a, I worked on it for like a couple months in the fall of 15 and then a couple months in the fall of 16 and then a couple months in the fall of 17. And before that I'd, I'd written the early pages of it so long ago, I literally can't even remember when, when exactly I had started. Um, but it was sort of telling once the book was done to look back and realize that a lot of the sections of the book had been written during particularly stressful moments and, and to kind of be forced to conclude, like, as if I were watching myself from the outside, that I'd been kind of provoked back to this material at really specific moments. And, and, you know, prior to the election moment, um, Again, I'd been working on this other book, which I continued to conceive of as the book that I was writing until basically the the bitter end when it's, you know, wreckage was kind of revealed to me. Someone read it and was like, uh, I don't I don't think you should show this to anyone else for a while. And I haven't. Um, but, you know, the moments at which I would abandon that and go to this material the notable one that predates the fall of 16 was the fall of 15 when I had returned to my alma mater, Yale, to teach for the first time. So I was returning to a place where I'd been actually a pretty unhappy student for the first time to be a teacher. The fall of 2015 at Yale was a very, very painful, um, roiled, I, I mean, I don't know if any single semester 
in the past decade could compare to it. It was, and just Google it if you're wondering, but it was, it was a really painful time to be on campus. Um, and because of a series of things that had happened around privilege and race and identity and, and really painful clashes between students and teachers. And so it was such a strange space to be in, to return to a place where I was psychically a student and to take on the responsible role of teacher. And I think that that is probably reflected in this book also, those tensions. Interesting. Um, I'm going to ask a couple more questions and then we'll open it up to start thinking of your questions now. Uh, So you must have been getting incredible reactions to this book from like readers. Um, What, I don't know if you have a favorite one, I'm just always curious or one that surprised you the most. Um, I do actually have one favorite. I mean, I have, I've, I've, the reactions to this book so far have been the most gratifying of my career. It's been really a joy. Um, it's, it's really thrilling, but one of my favorite reactions, which was fairly early came from a couple that I think, you know, Julie Bunton and Gabe Haybash, who are husband and wife, brilliant writers. So they had both read the book early and as they later told me, got into an enormous fight about the I book. I love this story. And like fought for hours and then later related this to me and I was sort of initially horrified and then they were both like, we really enjoyed it. Did they tell you like specifics about that? Julie's my editor. We're really good friends. Yeah. So like, did they mention like, were there like sides, I guess? Well, all I know is that Gabe said to me, okay, I'm going to present you with three options. Tell me which one is closest to right. And he said, this this, this, and I'm not going to say what they were. And I said this, and he goes, yes. And I was like, okay, I'm going to so ask I, Julie for the details. You, about you should this. ask Julie this for the great. details. Um, okay. So something else I wanted to ask is just, uh, I asked this of everybody, but, um, if any, this book blew my mind. Have you read anything lately? Anything you'd want to recommend if they love your book and the, like, this is such a setup. I loved your no. book. Your book is okay, the, but okay. Mine your book is not. literally the the book I've most recently read that that I I was. I swear I wasn't fishing for this. She I, wasn't, but I was. Her, Nicole's book is is amazing. It looks like this. <laughs> totally different niches. This is this is nonfiction. It's a memoir. It's anyway. Thank you. I I wept buckets. Um, the question, I guess, was also leading into if they love your book and the unconventional structure and narrative shifts. I mean, are there other books you'd really recommend they pick up? Oh, yeah, that's a really fun question. Um, you know, I later sort of looking at the DNA of this book, I was able to realize that certain books that I probably read in the past, like six to 10 years might have worked their ways into it. And and one of the ones that I know was really influential was Jennifer Egan's novel, The Keep, which do, I don't know if people know this book. Some people are nodding, which is great. Um, so The Keep, I did an event with Jenny in which I was able to answer a similar question by, by telling her it's truly The Keep was a, a real game changer for me. And I said, you know, and, and ever since it came out four or five years ago, and she cut me off and said, 12 years ago, I think. And then we both stared at each other in horror. So I think the keep might've come out in like before 2010. Um, but that book has this moment at which with such grace and uncompromising abruptness, the narrative just like yanks itself out from under your feet. And you're like, Whoa, I did not see that coming. And it's so fun. And, um, and so that, that certainly I think was in the back of my mind. That's great. Yeah. Thank you. Um, well, I could ask you a million more things, but I want to make sure the audience has a chance. So we'll do about 15 minutes. Um, please come up and use, I guess, this microphone. I, I think that one's probably on too, either. Um, just come up and speak into the microphone. Don't be shy. Don't be shy. Yay. Okay. Um, hi. Hi. Uh, so, so some qualities that struck me about the, the two perspectives, um, Sarah's and Karen's. Uh, Sarah's perspective just felt so embodied, so intimate. Um, and there was also this really interesting blurring that happened at times where she was almost making this claim to be able to tell you what other characters are thinking, particularly David, or to be able to tell you kind of what the, the whole school is thinking almost. And, and she, it's, it's, again, there's this blurriness, whereas... 
um, Karen's perspective, she wasn't even committing to telling you whether her perspective was her own as a singular right. person's. Um, so I was wondering, were those qualities, were those inherent to those perspectives as they emerged to you? And if not, kind of at what point in your, your process did they emerge? And, and how did you think about that? Um, that's such an interesting question. I think, I mean, it's a difference between the kind of classic novel perspective of omniscient third person in which the novel says to you, the reader, there's a godlike presence in this book that's able, that has authority. It has, um, it's telling you the truth. It has the ability to process the world for you and present the world to you and you should trust it. Not sorry, um, pun unintended. And so that's, I think, the sensibility of, of the earlier part of the novel, but it's exactly the kind of thing that Karen is made crazy by because Karen is basically like, there is no God, there is no authority, trust no one, everyone's lying, maybe even me, but I'm the person who's telling you about the liars, so I must be the truthful one, or maybe not. You know, So I think that's the thing is that Karen's a real rabble rouser. She doesn't really believe in that. She doesn't believe in authority. I think. And, and, you know, the novel is sort of built on this idea that there is an authority. I mean, it's such a funny thing, right? Because novels are defined, it's fiction. So the definition is that it's made up, right? And yet as readers, we believe, we like buy into this world and we think like, oh, there's a truth in it. Like people have asked me what happens to my characters after the book ends. And I'm like, I I don't, I don't know nothing because they don't exist. I'm afraid. Um, so I think it's Karen who who really kind of wants to shake things up and remind us of that. Yeah, thanks. Other questions? Just please. <laughs> That's a tall mic. That's a short person. <laughs> um, I wouldn't have asked this had there not been the opportunity. Why were you unhappy as a student at Yale? <laughs> Only answer if you want to, obviously. No, I'm happy to answer. Um, it's a simple answer. I was I was very ill prepared to be in a place like that. I did not receive a very thorough academic preparation for a place like Yale. And when I entered Yale, which was a long time ago, um, I think that there was less. I mean, you know, even now I think kids fall through the cracks a lot, but at that time there was a, there was a lot less of an awareness on the part of the institution that they really needed to make sure that you were okay once you got there. I mean, there, there is a bit of an arrogance around institutions like Yale where, you know, you got here, you must be awesome. Cause we are so do, do you? And, uh, and I just didn't know how I didn't know what, I didn't know what was what. And, um, and so I floundered. Again, that not quite being an adult, but feeling very much like an adult, like phase. Yeah. Yeah. No, I uh, just one small anecdote that I just remembered. I mean, I got to Yale and I went to Yale by myself, you know, I was sort of packed off and put on a plane. Um, I didn't know you were supposed to have your own bed sheets. Like I just remember being shown my room and there was this like bare mattress and I, I didn't, I I went and bought sheets, you know? So I, I just didn't, I was very unprepared for college. I was too, if it makes you feel any better. First generation attendee and crossed the country and did not know what was up either. Um, Other questions? Hi. Um, Sorry, I was a few minutes late. Sorry if you said this already, but um, have you done any acting or taken any acting classes? And if not, how did you get into writing from that perspective? And if so, what did it teach you? Um, I did attend a high school that had a theater program. And so I did take acting classes when I was a teenager, some of which did incorporate some of the unusual exercises and activities that I then modified for the book. Um, I immediately realized at that age that the stage was not the place for me. And escaped it as soon as I could. Although I love the theater. I went to college and became a techie. I became like a backstage nerd, which I, which is a world I still really love. 
interesting too. I was, I was, I also had a question about the theater aspect of the book. I did very, very few productions in high school, but what I remember too, sort of a similar cult of personality around the drama teacher. And also, um, it was a, it's a weird place where like, everyone's like so embarrassed of their feelings at that age. And in drama, it's one of the few places where you can lean into those feelings, but also you're supposed to channel them in different ways. And I thought you captured that so beautifully. Yeah. So I'll be quiet. It's I'll a, it's a, <laughs> it's a weird conundrum. Yeah. Hi. Um, what uh, can you say about being the daughter of a Jewish mom and a, a Korean? Is that right? Jewish and Korean? Uh-huh. And what can you say about that? How did it go growing up? <laughs> How did wow. it go? Um, <laughs> that's a, you know, I... Did you have siblings? Did you have siblings? No. No siblings. The experiment was, was short-lived. Um <laughs> You know, it was pretty interesting. I I have to say, in retrospect, <laughs> looking back at my own childhood, I think my parents were both very, um, I don't think either of them fit very comfortably in their respective, like, contexts of origin, or they never would have tried to make a life together. They didn't succeed, but they, they remain very friendly with each other. Once they threw in the towel, they, oh. the things Im- improved yeah. considerably. Um, but I think that my father was a, was a quite atypical Korean man for his time and place. And I think my mother is sort of the same. Um, and again, to, to, to back up what I'm saying, I feel like I'm going to, you know, stray into the land of possible stereotype, but I think my, you know, my biggest evidence is that neither of them really seemed keen to hang out my mother with Jews, my father with Koreans when I was growing up. They both seemed to have wanted to kind of get away from their pasts and their families and their home cultures. Um, And so my upbringing was a little rudderless, I have to say, you know, and all, and also on the upside, it was quite just by default, it was kind of inclusive. Like, I I don't think my parents really knew what to do. So during, I mean, they were both atheists, but during the Christmas holidays, like we had a tree and a menorah and every once in a while, my mother made latkes and my father put soy sauce on them, which sound, which sounds like a sitcom. But these, these were like rare moments of harmony for, for most of the rest of the time. They were actually totally at odds with each other. But it was it was it was interesting. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> I think we have time for like one more, maybe two if they're quick. Oh, is that OK with you? Maybe. Sure. But you wrote a memoir? Yes. So I haven't read your memoir, but I'm interested in that whole subject. How did you, how much of yourself did you have to give up to write the memoir? Like your private person. Oh, um, my memoir is a memoir about growing up adopted. Um, I'm Korean. My adoptive family's white. So growing up in a transracial adoption in a very white community in Oregon and then searching for my Korean birth family at the same time I was pregnant with my first biological child. Um, and so the focus of the book is actually pretty narrow. I mean, to get everything, adoption's a huge subject, race in America and family, these are huge topics to, to kind of get what I wanted into the story and not have it be 800 pages long. I, I did have to keep the focus pretty tight on that aspect of my life. And it was something I was really comfortable and ready and eager to, sh- well, eager might be overstating it. I was comfortable sharing that. I'd had practice putting myself out there and talking about adoption and race and um, it felt like something important to do. So, but yeah, I think when you write any book, fiction or non, you're kind of giving up a little bit of yourself and it it, it costs something to come and do events. Um, and I think that's true for fiction writers as well. So, but yeah, um, it was deeply personal, but I, I guess I still feel like there are parts of my life that are just mine, thank God. Um, so... And I actually have a quick question. Oh, yeah. do you want to? No. You, oh. Well, just because that's a writing question, I feel, and there are always some writers in the audience, and you've written five incredible books now, which is, like, magic. So, honestly, like, how do you write a second book? <laughs> but, um, no, like, if you have any advice, I guess, for people who write or are thinking about writing about either their life or made-up lives. How do you write a sixth book is what I want to know. Uh, um, you're, I mean, I can't help you with that. <laughs> 
Um, I guess I, one thing I'll say, which will probably disappoint everyone, including me, is that it, it doesn't seem to get easier figuring out how to write a book. Yeah. I don't, I was incredibly disappointed after I finished my first book to discover that trying to write another book was much more difficult than trying to write the first one. Sorry. Um, and, and it, it, it hasn't really gotten easier. I think for me, the biggest problem is discovering what book it is. Like the work has gotten a lot easier. Actually, I'm, I'm much better at, it's much easier for me to sit down and just do the work, which is, which is, which I define as sit your butt down produce a bunch of words that are actually arranged in sentence form in the English language. Um, and you know, don't move for at least three hours and then you can, you're allowed to have lunch and then try to do that a little more before you just knock off for the day. Um, so I, I can make words and sentences a lot more easily than I used to be able to, but I can also do that. I can produce reams of writing and not produce a book. So that's the challenge is really like what of the many things I write about or generate sentences about, which one of them is going to end up being going the distance. And, um, I mean, as is obvious from my like allusion to the, to the wreckage of what I thought was book number five, it's, it's possible to go on for a really long time with something that turns out not to be the book. And I haven't figured out how to, it's like trial and error seems to be the only way. I hope you figure that out, but I'm glad we got chest exercise in the meantime. Thanks. We'll, we'll both figure it out. I, I, we must believe. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, it's been about an hour. So, um, Susan will be signing books. Um, I'm not sure what to tell you to light up. Do you want to? So can we get one more round of applause for our speakers? Cause this was a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of the bookstore and slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.